we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Northern Power Women podcast for your career and your life, no matter what business you're in. Hello, happy February. I'm Sam Walker and welcome to episode eight of the Northern Power Women podcast. You're better than you think you are. On the way, you'll hear from Bolshe Scouser, as her husband apparently calls her, QC Cherie Blair on the multitasking her time living at Downing Street demanded and what life was like being the only female barrister in her chambers. I could be working on a, a legal case and preparing my brief and then break off for half an hour and go downstairs and entertain the, the wife of a visiting dignitary for tea. Our panel this month was hosted by the brilliant SAE Institute in Liverpool and our panellists and audience tackled the subjects of nepotism, being your authentic self in male-dominated boardrooms and why equal pay seems not to exist in so many careers. It doesn't matter about the tackle you carry here and that, and that is, is anybody. It's what you've got in your head and what you've got in your heart that counts and if you can do it and you've got the strength to be able to do it, then why not? In Ask the Hive, one listener wants to move on from her job and wonders whether or not to come clean to her current boss. As ever, you come up with some great advice. I think that the very last thing that I would do is tell my current employer. I think that would be ridiculous, to be honest. But let's kick off proceedings with a word from the woman who steers the ship. A woman who I discovered this month used to be an air traffic controller. So much now makes sense. It's the one and only founder of Northern Power Women, Simone Roche. What a great start to 2018. And what a brilliant podcast episode eight is. I'm really thrilled to have Cherie Blair as our person with purpose this month. It's a really great interview, so thanks Cherie, who is also one of our inspiring power list. We've also loved working with the SAE Institute this month, who filmed and hosted our podcast in Liverpool. Thank you to the team and students for taking part and conducting the Vox Pops. We look forward to working with you at more events in the future. Big congratulations this month to all of our shortlist and we look forward to finding out who the winners are at our gala dinner on Tuesday the 6th of March. Our judges have been busy looking at who will join the power list and future list this year, who have been notified and will also be unveiled at the awards. We're delighted to welcome our partners for this year's awards, including NatWest, Northern Rail, Santander, Keels, MSP Global and of course our venue Hilton Hotel Deansgate. If you'd like to support, partner or sponsor, please do get in touch. We're planning our forthcoming Power Circles with KPMG, which will be hosting in Newcastle, Leeds and Manchester, discussing the key business topics across the regions of the Northern Powerhouse. We need your help too. We're planning our Futures Conference and would love your input and feedback on what you think we should be discussing. We'll be hosting idea gatherings for you to share your thoughts and suggestions at sessions in Newcastle and Manchester. We'd also like to hear from you via our online survey too, so please get in touch if you want to be involved. 
subscribe, share, leave a review for the podcast and do get in touch. Connect at northernpowerwomen.com. Thanks again. Speak next month. And remember, you can follow everything that Northern Power Women does on Twitter at North Power Women. Now to this month's discussion panel, which as ever covered some very topical and some very contentious subjects, with a special big thank you to the students and staff from our hosts, the SAE Institute in Liverpool. Thank you so much for such a warm welcome to the SAE Institute in Liverpool today. It might be a bit miserable outside, but we are feisty and ready to go inside for the recording of Can You Believe It? Episode 8. I know. Be amazed of the Northern Power Women podcast. And as ever, we have an absolutely superb panel in front of us today, ready to put the world of business to rights. Or at least start a conversation. That's generally what we're about. So please, first of all, welcome to uh, Annie O'Toole from Draw and Code and Swap Bots. Also, uh, Nathan Alemani. Not a bad Spanish accent there. Uh, of course, from the Business Festival here in Liverpool. And Michelle Partington uh, from the newly launched Mentis, a PTSD survivor and not only a veteran of the Invictus Games, but you're training for this year as well. All of you welcome. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Okay then, question number one, and I'm sure so many people would have been having this conversation uh, amongst their friends and their colleagues over the last few weeks, but the resignation of the BBC China editor, Carrie Gracie, over equal pay sparked much debate and editorial on the issue. Now, it followed, of course, with more high-profile examples like that of actors Michelle Williams and Mark Wahlberg. Is equal pay, Annie O'Toole, something you have been aware of in your circles? And how big a problem do you think it is? Um, Yes, I'm aware of it. I work in the technology sector, so it's rife amongst um, our industry, unfortunately. Um, I think that, you know, there's a huge amount that needs to be done uh, to to sort out this problem. Um, But it does start with things like people resigning and taking a stand, particularly those in the public eye. I think it really highlights the problems and just how far people are willing to go to actually solve this issue. Um, It is a massive problem, you know, as as a female within, within my sector. I know that if I was getting paid comparatively less than my male colleagues that that would be something that would stifle me in multiple ways you know my confidence like how I would feel about my job how I would feel about my future and wanting to continue within the company that I was employed by so there's so many different Mm -hmm. things that go on there and you know I'm thankful that there are people who are willing to go this far to, to show that actually you know this is something that needs to change. I think a challenge so many people are facing is is finding out because we don't like to talk about how much we get paid. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's difficult to even start that conversation with a male comparator and say, what's, what's on your pay slip then? Give, have a look at that. Yes, yeah, so I mean, within the technology sector, it's it's quite dramatically different. Um, however, women who do work in the technology sector comparatively get paid around 30% more than they do in other sectors. So it is a good place for women to work. Unfortunately, there's still a gap between them and their male colleagues. But even if you look at, for example, Natalie Portman and Ashton Kutcher, like he was paid three times more than her uh, to co-star in the same film. You know, that is a massive difference. Three times more. That's not like 20%. That's a huge, huge difference. Um, So it's really important that women are empowered and that they are given what they deserve uh, for the roles that they have within organisations. 
Michelle, your background is in the military, still viewed from the outside in as a very male-dominated and very macho environment. What was your experience, first of all? Um, the, the pay gap itself wasn't really there because um, per role, they would they pay the person that's in the role. Mm. Um, the thing I found with gender equality in, in, in the forces is role-specific and what jobs you can actually do in the military. Um, and I, I fought hard to be the first female to go out on the ground with the RAF regiment in, in Afghanistan. And it took so much conversation and oh well can you do that and can you you know are you able to do that do we need a separate washing area in the middle of the desert in afghan to be honest what they're going to do put up a portal and stuff do you know what i mean <laughs> so it was it, but there's so many questions and, and so many debates about oh well whether should we let a female out how are they going to cope with it if the lads could go off with a shovel and their rifle to go to the toilet surely i could do that as well so i did and i pushed and pushed for it um and and proved that actually it's not what you've got in this area that counts it's what you've got in in your head and in your heart and if you can do the job and you've got the skills and you've got the equipment to be able to do the job it, sh it shouldn't matter so um for me the military in that respect good pay wise but generally role specific they are getting better and now they've just released that people can you know ladies can join the RAF regiment so it, it is great but I did it in 2009 and and it just proves that you can do it sorry I just thought so you know gender it, it shouldn't be and I will always say and I've said it throughout everything that I do it doesn't matter about the tackle you carry here and that and that is is anybody it's what you've got in your head and what you've got in your heart that counts and if you can do it and you've got the strength to be able to do it then why not Nathan I know there's been quite a lot of backlash generally across the media after Carrie Gracie's resignation what conversations have you had regarding this I, I think it's a very very complex issue clearly and uh, transparency is, uh, is, is is very much needed and um, what I found really interesting around that story in particular was what happened straight after that. And so uh, John Humphreys, I think, um, made a joke of the whole uh, of the whole story uh, on BBC Radio Four. It, it was an off-air chat, wasn't it? it? it, it an off-air chat during a pre-record. It but was, yeah, in fact, yeah. yeah, it was. A, it was an off-chat, but nonetheless, it was, it was picked up. And um, I, I think that the reality is that you know it is a very complex area. You know, jobs are. Um, also vertical in terms of the roles, the experience, the, uh, the things that you have to do. If, if you've been working somewhere for 10 years more than somebody else, you may argue mm -hmm. that you, know, you, uh, you get paid more because you've got more experience. So people view this in, in very different ways. And I think that um, the reality is that do we need to lower balance? I think we need to find a, a, the right balance. So new jobs are equal for both men and women. I think that um, if somebody has the same level of experience, capability, uh, but different tackle, as my colleague here says, I think, I think that you know, the job, sh that the pay should be absolutely the same. I suppose the interesting point to follow on from what Michelle was saying is, are women and men given those same opportunities? Because you're right, you might say, well, look, he's, he's, he's at a higher level than, than this other yeah. uh, colleague who's been here a similar amount of time. Well, perhaps that's because women generally, historically, haven't been promoted in the same way during that organisation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, again, that there, are, there are many layers around this. And I work in, in a business environment where, where I come across a lot of different uh, leaders, um, you know, what I would call the dinosaurs that are still around and the, you know, the, the, the men, the great head men, a little bit like me, but slightly older, that um, have a very different way of looking at the world. Uh, they still see, um, you know, they still 
think that there is a boys club surrounding much of what of what they do and that certainly exists uh, versus the new leaders um, for new companies and very, very often in technology and innovation where people have a very different way of looking at the world so I think industries vary I think also um, the characters and the experiences of different leaders and I can see that there will be change in the next in the next 50 years and it is it is only right that, that we press for that to happen now just quicker audience poll who here is concerned as you're entering the world of work about the gender pay gap do you think it's going to affect you about 70 percent of people few people though don't worry it's going to affect them can i lunge at you rudely and ask you why you don't think it'll affect you because i'm technically on the better end of the pay gap so i'm not too sure whether it will directly affect me or not so what about a daughter or a wife or a sister um, I know uh, they would be affected by it, but I don't believe it will personally affect me, but I still believe there shouldn't be a pay gap. The only gap should be in experience, not gender. Okay. Anyone got any burning thoughts to share on the gender pay gap on this one? Yes. Oh, sorry, let me... I've got to lunge at you with a microphone. You can't... It's not question time, this. You can't stop talking. Sorry as I lunge over you. No, I think what you're saying about balancing the pay gap... Um, it, it, women who are in a position of being paid less than men, do they get paid more or do men get paid less? So I guess it could affect both sides, and it's trying to find that balance. I mean, in my mind, you should be paid upon ability, and that's why you should get a job, not because of your gender or anything else. But I think society might be getting to a point where we're a lot more accepting of things. And I think, as um, Nathan said, there's sort of dinosaurs start frankly dying out mm. I think a lot of the old-fashioned <laughs> ideals will die with them on a more positive note I think equality is starting to go the right way you know if, if you look at the way that um, especially in the workplace mental illness is treated now yeah. you know it, that's getting a lot better people are a lot more accepting and understanding so I think it will affect everyone but we don't know how it's going to affect them I think it's trying to figure out the best way of moving forward together Thank you very much indeed. Well, as ever, we always say, don't we, it's part of the uh, the podcast recording. This is the start of the conversation. So, oh, I've got another one before we go. Another uh, another comment from the audience. Um, I think we've got to remember that the inequality we see is, is structural inequalities. These are built into every single one of our institutions, so they're not going to just fade out. We have to design them out. Um, and it is a complex subject, but there, is, there are women make up 51% of the population. So it's not about women getting jobs because they're not as good and they're trying to tick a box because we're actually half of the population. So when we don't give women equal pay and we don't give them equal opportunities, we actually miss out on half of our population. Thank you very much indeed for all your comments. Oh, I've got a final one uh, from Michelle before we move on to the next question. Sorry, I just wanted to add the comment that, um, just following on from what you said, um, if it doesn't affect you, it doesn't mean that you can't get involved in trying to make a difference. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter if it directly affects you, if it's going to affect your family or anything. If we all work together, we can make a difference and not just because it doesn't affect you, you can sit back. Have more conversations, I think, is the overriding message from all of us today. Well, thank you so much. And anything you would like to add, of course, do get in touch. You can tweet us at North Power Women or email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. OK, really interesting one with this. I'm going to start with you, Nathan, please, on this one, because Carolyn Radford, who is the CEO of Mansfield Town Football Club, said that when she first joined the completely male-dominated world of football, she said, and this is a quote, I tried to be one of the boys. My first managerial style was to try and be tough and 
and make macho decisions and it was inauthentic to who I am. In her words, she then put on a dress and displayed care and compassion. And in fact, it completely turned the club finances around. Now, in any industry, from the creative to tech to the military, where women are underrepresented in top managerial roles, how do we encourage this change of culture? And I suppose it comes down to the fact that some women think that sector's not for me, tech's not for me, military's not for me because there aren't people like me there in those top roles. How do we change that, Nathan? I, 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 I've seen this again many, many times. You know, I've seen it um, from the point of view that you know uh, you have a someone who's been promoted to to a role, to a boardroom that's mainly made up of men, and one they feel they need to act in a whole different way. They need to be tougher and more manly, and you know they've got to bang their fists on the table and all the things that people perceive uh, happen in, in in boardrooms. When actually the fact is that. People bring different values and characters and emotion and um, empathy to, to roles, and all of that is what makes the culture of an organization. Um, I, I feel that um, it's important for us to recognize that men and women bring those different values and, and uh, different things to the table, essentially. That, that, that's what it is. That, that's what makes us really strong. We, we have a team at the International Business Festival that's pretty well balanced in terms of men and women. You know, there are, there are some characters that are naturally more aggressive, and that's not only the men, that can also be the women, that they have a different way of looking at the world because of who they are, not because, of, because they're women, a man or a woman. Um, but what, what a good leader needs to do, I think, and this is really important, is find the right balance of characters. Um, you know, and, and that is actually, it doesn't matter whether that, that is based on, on a man or a woman, that they are representative of the customers you're trying to, to attract, and that you understand uh, the values that different people have and that you present that on, on, on your top-tier management team. I think that's really important. And that's why you see, I think, businesses really succeeding when they really understand that the makeup of their management needs to be well-balanced. Mm. Michelle, you talked earlier on about the fact you were the first woman to really fight against that regiment. You were literally the only woman in that role. Did you feel you could be your authentic self or did you try and fit into an existing framework? Did you have to? I think initially um, I wanted to push to prove that I could do the job and that any female could do the job. And when I went out there initially, I was like, right, I'm going to prove this. I'm going to prove everybody wrong. And I guess in a way that was the wrong frame of mind. I should have just gone out and, and be myself because I pushed too hard then for the first sort of week or so. I pushed myself so much. I made sure that when we went on foot patrols, I was right in the middle of everybody and you know I, I, I did um, what they used to call stag on so at middle of the night when everybody was sleeping um, there were three people that stood guard to make sure nothing would happen and I chose to get involved in that well they decided at the end of that to put me on first or last because every little bit of movement I was like what's that what's that what's that so I kept everybody awake so that maybe wasn't the thing but you know with, with any sort of job in any sort of line of work management or, or you, you know whatever level you're working at I think what's important is finding what strengths each individual individual person has and working to, to, to use those strengths. So I, I was never good at cooking and, and I'll never be good at cooking, but I'm more good at DIY, you know, but it's finding out what you're good at and it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So when I went out there, yes, I could keep up with the foot patrols. I was fit enough and that, but actually after the first week, I was exhausted because I tried too hard and, and I pushed myself too hard, you know, but if you just relax, just be yourself. If you can do the job, then just prove you can do it just by being yourself. Yeah. You don't have to try harder than somebody else because you'll just burn out. 
So that that's effectively what I did. I, I just too hard too soon when in fact I was just being myself after a couple of weeks and it was just as good. Mm. Loved it. It's interesting you talk about trying to, to be something you're not to start with. Cherie Blair is actually the, the interview for this episode of the Northern Power Women podcast and she talks about becoming a barrister in the 70s and walking in and everyone just presuming, all the men presuming she was the secretary and then she said freaking out when I got my, you know, put my gown and my wig on. They were like, what's going on? <laughs> and there was no changing room. There was no female changing room for barristers in, in those days as well. Tech's got, hasn't it, Annie, you know, anecdotally a terrible reputation for women. How have you found things have changed? Do you, do you think women are more able to, to be themselves in tech now? Well, unfortunately, I wasn't alive in the 70s, uh, so I can't quite compare back to that. <laughs> well, the tech industry wasn't really around in the way it is today in the 70s. I didn't mean those days, but I mean... Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, like, even just looking at um, maternity leave, for example, I... Um, prior to my role at Drawing Code, had my own company um, and employed eight people. And I fell pregnant when I was 24 and fell pregnant. That sounds a bit old school. Anyway, <laughs> I became pregnant and, um, and, I, and I needed to take maternity leave. And all of a sudden, um, all of these issues surrounding maternity leave that I'd never even really thought about um, really came you know, to light. I was employing eight people and if I was going to take six months off, those eight people could be out of a job at the end of those six months because the company might not survive it. Whereas my partner at the time, he wasn't allowed to take any paternity leave. I think it was a week. Um, and he worked in a huge organisation you know, as a, as a low-level manager and yet he wasn't allowed to take time off and I was supposed to take the time off. So so I'm like, hang on a minute, eight people could lose their jobs here and like we can't get any kind of equal maternity paternity. So that's something that I think absolutely has to change in the UK. And um, if we look over at Sweden and their maternity paternity regulations and, and actually pay and how couples actually lose out on money if they don't take equal paternity maternity leave um, I think that's going to dramatically impact the way in which women in the workplace you know hiring and, and um, developing and training you know that's going to make a huge difference in itself that certainly needs to change that's one thing that that definitely needs to change and hasn't really changed at all has mm. it looking back from the 70s to now like is there very much change other than some women work you know uh, but the percentage of women who actually leave their career entirely is, is, is ginormous and then Actually, they then struggle to go back into positions. Um, so that certainly needs some adjustments. A little bit of a way to go I yet. I answered your question. I kind you of didn't. One but you know what? No. I enjoyed it. I do that, though. Do you want to ask it again? No, I'm quite happy. Yeah, I enjoyed that. I think we learned a lot. Thanks. Also, that uh, Annie was not alive in the 70s. Thanks for rubbing it in. Uh, anyone got in the audience got anything to say? I'm sorry, I'm going to lunge right over. If you could lunge towards me, yes. Hi, so talking about skills, and um, we're not students here, but we saw about your podcast via Facebook. Um, I'm an actress and SJ here is a producer and we uh, were putting on this play in Manchester this year and we, when we came about this play, this piece of material, um, and the, it's a two-female-hander play, we were looking to get different directors on board. So, so I went to various established actors and directors and... Uh, a lot of the answers I got back was that this is an, a fantastic play and what you need is a cracking male director. So when I went um, ahead to ask why, um, as I'm open to discussion, uh, it was kind of like a 
no nonsense topic. It was just a given that this was uh, what we needed was a male director and that it would be much more successful if we got a male director on board. So we eventually did go with a female director and we, which was not to do with gender, was because this girl um, who has now gone on to be assistant director at the Oldham Coliseum wanted to be on board and she had great ideas and I was so shell-shocked that I was having discussions about pe- with people in literally Christmas and people were saying that you need a successful, uh, not even a successful, a male director on board mm. to make this place successful. So it's it's still very much prominent and obviously a clear, clear problem. People aren't looking at skills, people mm. are looking at gender still. How do you think we tackle that? Is it by just having conversations like this again and again and again and again? Is that, is that yeah. the way to do it, to highlight it? I think it's by asking questions as well. Like, my first thing was why that we should have a male director. And for the answer to not be anything and for it to just be, it would be more successful to have a male director. And that's not a good enough reason. And people need to say, OK, that, that to me, that isn't good enough. Yes, do. I think the best way to say it would be just to say a director, a producer. It should be completely irrelevant. I think the more people speak about, you know, I'm an actor, I'm a producer, the gender thing shouldn't, shouldn't be female director or female producer. If we all just started using, that's a CEO, she's a CFO, mm. or they're just a CFO, they're not female or male. I think if we all as a, well, as the world just started doing that, just calling people by their job titles rather than their gender, would probably start to sort that out a little bit. It comes, of course, the day after that Greta Gerwig becomes the first director, who is a woman, to be nominated <laughs> in eight years. But she's not under the category best female director. You're right, just, just best director. Right. This is a long one today, Simone, isn't it? We're putting the world to rights here. I'm loving this. Right, before we move on. Yes, Annie. Yeah. I don't want to say that was very well said. I thought that like your comments were fantastic. Um, and I also want to say when you said yeah, how how do we actually like change this? Um, like companies that have women in their C suite do thirty percent better. So if you wanna make thirty percent more profit, make sure you've got diversity in your C suite. Like that's a no brainer. Thank you very much for everyone for all your comments today. Uh, we have one more question then for the Northern Power Women podcast today. Day, which I think is going to affect um, a lot of people in this room, actually. I don't know what all your backgrounds are and your family histories, work backgrounds, but I think it's very interesting across so many different industries. Nepotism, the old boys club, unconscious bias, whatever you want to call it. It's really hard for someone with absolutely no connection to an industry, whether it's TV presenting, whether it's acting, directing, whether it's tech, whether it's law, whether it's medicine, whatever it may be, it's very, very hard to break through if you have absolutely no connection. How do we widen the playing field? Michelle, how do we widen the playing field in all areas, really? I'm out of the military now for 23 years, you know, after 23 years. And yes, I've now set up or setting up my own business. But before that, I was trying to get into work and having been a paramedic for, for that length of time to then go into the corporate world, which I haven't really got the speak yet, as you may or may not have gathered. What we need to do is, is forget don't these stereotypes of all oh, the military people or this, that people. Mm. They don't know that. They don't know that. Actually, just get the person in front of you, see what skills they have and see how they can benefit and help enhance your company. And, and that doesn't happen very often. And they've got some people have ideas of who they want in their company, whether that's for, you, you know, how we're going to look or how we're going to feel. I'm not exactly, you know, a lady. So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, and even stereotypes with how people look, how they act, how they speak, everything. I mean, when I went, I went as a commissioned officer, I went to apply initially for the military and they turned me down 
for the first go because I clipped my words. I was from Lancashire. I'm from Wigan, actually. But, you know, and, but they, sorry, but they, you know, they told me off because I, I clipped my words. And that for me, and they were like, well, what do you mean I can't be an officer in the Royal Air Force because I don't speak the way you speak? You know, and, and there's, there's discrimination all over the place. And, that, and I think whether that's gender or anything else, we need to try and get out of all this and just treat the person as an individual who has gifts and has talents that could enhance a company. Mm. It's really hard, I think, from the point of view of the candidate as well, Nathan, because I remember when I left uni and I wanted to be a journalist and I wrote to every newspaper asking for work experience and I was just another pile on the editor's desk or the features editor's desk or the... no, Not a single reply came to me and I tried... I knew I got a good degree and I'd gone to a local paper and done bits but I could not get any work experience. Then my girlfriend's sister's boyfriend's brother (laughs) worked at The Independent and got me in to see somebody. And it was that kind of tenuous connection. I was so lucky, because I don't think I'd be stood here today had not I had that really weird tenuous connection. What about people who never have that chance of even that most tenuous connection? It's really hard just to get answers, isn't it? It is, and I I, I guess... uh, I could tell you an example of someone that works in my team um, who I truly adore. Uh, this young woman, she's, uh, she's 19. Laurice, this is for you if you're listening, right? <laughs> um, so she, uh, she is a mid-year student, she did a marketing degree and is in a gap year. Uh, ambitious girl, she's really ambitious. And, you know, by her own admission, we'll tell you that, you know, she has a lot to learn. She identifies the bits that she thinks is not as strong in as, as, as others. Um, and she's desperate to get into uh, the world of marketing um, in major events. That's what she wants to work. Mm-hmm. Major events, marketing, right? Um, a lot of men work in that sector also. Um, so she started doing, um, giving up her time, her spare time. So she would then apply for volunteering roles within organizations that would, would take her and she'd do the odd job. And that's how she started getting, uh, getting some experience and getting to meet some more people and open her, her network. Um, wh- when I interviewed her and she told me her story and how she got to that point, I, I thought that was fantastic. And I thought, you know, you, you can stay, you can sit behind and moan that n- nobody's going to give you an opportunity, but you can truly want one and you really want to go and get it. And you're willing to, at that point, whilst you're young and you can still do a little bit for free, which obviously it gets harder the older you get, um, I think it's, it's certainly a, a way, a way, an opportunity that, that people should look at. I mean, it's hard, isn't it, to do anything for free if, if you haven't got a mum and dad who go, yeah, live here for free. How, how do you earn that money? And I've heard that time and time again. This is also a class issue. Someone can't afford to intern for six months for free in a creative business, for example. How the heck do you do that? Yeah, uh, and, you know, again, it's all a little bit about, you know, you don't have to work 39 hours for free. Uh, you can maybe do a little project for free or, you know, try and find, you know, uh, you know five hours a week. But, again, you start to meet people. If you're truly interested in a particular sector or industry, um, it will just open some doors for you, if, if nothing else. And, you know, it may well be five hours a week, right, it's enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next thing you know, people will get to know you they'll 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 respect you they will um they like the way that you work and suddenly there is a vacancy oh how about this young person that's working here giving them an opportunity so i think it's just starting somewhere isn't it and it's not about massive leaps it's just little steps i think okay annie the final question then um 
comes to you around this this idea of nepotism in the old boys club I suppose it goes the other way that you know you quite often see people well their father was a lawyer and they're a lawyer and their daughters are a lawyer but when you sit around a table and you've got children if you love your job you enthuse about your job and of course if they say I like the sound of that you can introduce them and you can help them should we rage against that or is that the natural order of things I mean I think it's always going to happen you know, people are always going to have people who influence them, whether it's family members, friends, um, you know, relatives, you know, that that's going to happen. Um, but when it does become a class issue, like you said previously, that people can't actually afford to make their way into the industries, that's when it becomes a problem because then you don't have diversity at the top level, which, which is what you needed. It's a fight and a struggle for people to get there. I mean, I dropped out of university and I knew nobody in the digital sector. You know, I didn't really know very much about technology at all um, and it was such a slog to get my way to you know to the position that I was in um, and quite often you know you get people turn around saying oh she's a bitch or don't talk to her because just because I'm female or just because I don't know somebody and it was it was really really hard and I don't believe that it should have to be that hard um, I think that things can happen and companies can adapt and change to allow new talent to come through and it's so important because talent is is a problem we need more <laughs> we need more people so we need to do something about it anyone in the audience concerned about how they want to break into what they really would love to do or can you see there's a kind of clear route ahead hello oh how can i lunge to you <laughs> right i'm going to extend my arm sorry kate okay um i just wanted to make a point going back to what michelle said about being northern and the voice um i did a law degree and i went did work experience at a law firm and it wasn't just hard being a woman it was hard being northern i was with a partner and he said to me once we were going for a contract and there was really just normal language and he was like would people in the north understand that and I didn't really know how to respond because whether it was a joke or not it wasn't funny and I think being northern and a woman is hard to break down into the south and into industries like law. Thank you very much indeed any more comments? We're all done We've done ourselves in. Uh, well, look, thank you so, so much for coming today. It's been absolutely brilliant to see you. Please do subscribe, like, leave a comment on iTunes. I'll come around and make you a cup of tea if you do. Uh, it would be wonderful if you do. Thank you so much for that. Northern Power Women podcast is where you find us. Uh, a huge thank you again and a big thank you to our panellists with a round of applause to Michelle Partington, Annie O'Toole and Nathan Alimendi. Another terrific discussion. Thanks again to our panellists and to our hosts, the SAA Institute in Liverpool. If there's a topic that you would love to be discussed, what's been overlooked in your book? What needs some attention? Do let us know. Just tweet at North Power Women. Next month, we're recording in Manchester. Do watch for our Twitter feed and newsletters for details how you can be part of the audience or head online to northernpowerwomen.com. Now, it's time for our big interview, where we get a peek inside the business mind of someone who's had real success in their field. This month, it's a woman who had to continue her successful career under the glare of the world's media when she and her family moved to Downing Street after her husband became Prime Minister. It's barrister Cherie Blair. I asked Cherie if, despite relocating, she still felt a real affinity with her birthplace, the North. 
Oh, absolutely. I've always felt a very strong sense that I'm a northern girl, you know, whether whether it's my husband accusing me of being a Bolshe scouser or just <laughs> being very conscious that I'm a lassie from Lancashire, having been, as you say, born in Bury. Yeah, no, it's 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 always been very important to me. And when I came down to London, first to the LSE and then to the bar, particularly, I think, at the bar, you know, being a northerner was a sort of... Uh, unusual and a badge of pride as far as I was concerned and I still say bath and laugh uh, and indeed my children accuse me of also making them say bath and laugh <laughs> even though down here you know they say bath and laugh <laughs> it's interesting that you say that that being northern was a badge of pride because by going into law in London not only were there weren't many northerners at the time but there also weren't very many women and you were actually around women a lot as a child. You were raised by women, your mum and your grandma, yet you entered a very male world. How did that feel? Well, you're absolutely right that when I first qualified as a, as a barrister, it was a male-dominated world. And when I was called to the bar in 1976, I was one of only 10% of women entrants to the profession at that time. Um, and then when I actually not just passed my exams, but actually went on to practice, um, you know, women were very uh, few and far between. I can remember going once to East Anglia to a local court there and walking into the robing room and it was full of men and they all fell silent when I walked in because um, they thought, A, I was a secretary and B, were then horrified because I proceeded to take my coat off and put my wig and gown on. Uh, so you were very conscious that you were one of a very small band of, of women at, at that time. Why did, why did it not put me off? I have absolutely no idea. Somehow or other, uh, possibly because I was brought up by two strong women, I never really thought that that being a girl would stop me doing what I wanted to do. It was only when I actually got to the bar and then discovered when I was trying to find um, a pupillage, which is like an apprenticeship, a trait, the last stage of your training, that the fact that I was a girl was a disadvantage. And people would say things like, well, you know, we don't actually take women here because the clients don't like them. Or, well, we do take women, but we've got one. And how could we possibly have more than one in case they both <laughs> fell pregnant at the same time? How did you overcome that? Um, I just kept looking. <laughs> Persistence. I think I think to some extent you do have to, to, to have perseverance and... A strong sense that this is what you want to do, so you won't take no for an answer. I think for me, also because I'd done so well in the exams, I really kind of felt I deserved a chance. What surprised you most about those first few years in your career? Well, the funny thing is that for many clients who maybe were reluctant at first or, or didn't even realise they, they had a woman representing them till I turned up, if you actually did a good job, they tended to be much more faithful to you there afterwards because I think they were so surprised that you'd done so well that they thought, I don't know, they must have thought you were really good. And also, I suppose the other thing is you stuck out because there weren't so many women, so you were more noticeable. Do you think you approached the job differently because you were a woman? And if so, how? Well, I think uh, naturally women do approach things differently just because you know, in all jobs, you're formed by your own experiences. And the truth is, women have different experiences in life than men. Because uh, the way society treats women is different from the way they treat men. Um, on the other hand, when I started, 
I was so determined to prove that as a girl, and I was a girl, I was still only 21 when I qualified because I'd been accelerated through the school system. So I was really young. I mean, no one my age would ever qualify to be a barrister and be let loose in court today. It just just wouldn't happen. Um, But I was so determined to prove that I could do it despite being a girl that to some extent I tried, if you like, to be more like the men than the men. (laughs) I think that was a very common tendency for women uh, not just when I was starting, which is mid-70s and 80s, uh, but even in the generation before me, they felt that, you know, they had to fit in almost more than the men had to fit in in order to succeed. And I think that really reflected mostly when it came to me taking, because, of course, as you know, Leah was born in Downing Street, but I had my other three children whilst um, yeah. I, was a, I, was a, I was a barrister in the 80s. I had ended up with three children under five. And through that, certainly my first two pregnancies, I was so determined to prove that, you know, I could carry on with my work. And I worked right up to the birth, possibly foolishly. Um, you know, I didn't ask for any, any um, maternity concessions. And at that time, the sex discrimination and maternity leave policy didn't apply to self-employed people so, you know mm. if we didn't work we didn't eat right so uh, while I was having my f- two boys and it's actually my son's 34th birthday today uh, and I was off for four months with him I still continued to pay my contribution to the rent and expenses uh, which doesn't happen now but you know I know ne- it never even occurred to me to ask for some sort of concession because I didn't want them to think oh she's making trouble because she's a woman And then later on, the Bar Council made it a professional obligation of barristers' chambers to allow women uh, uh, exemption from the expenses whilst they're on maternity leave. So it's not the position anymore. So things change. Yeah. Yeah, of course, you're a mother of four. You're a wife. And we often get asked about this in the podcast. Um, You know, when I'm actively building my career, how can I ensure that work doesn't always win the battle for my attention? Yeah, well, I think that's the uh, $64,000 question, isn't it? Um, how do you prioritize? How do you balance your family and, and, and your work? And I wish I knew the magic answer to that, uh, but, but I don't. But what I do say, I think, is I think you have to realize that you can have it all, but you may not be able to have it all at the same time. And you've mm. got to recognize that there may be times in, in your career when you because of your family commitments, for example, when you're pregnant or you've got young children, you're going to have to take a bit of a uh, step back or take your foot off the, the, the progress accelerator pedal in your life in order to you know, help yourself and your family and, and have a, a normal and sensible lifestyle. Um, but that doesn't mean that there are other times as your children go, go bigger, get bigger and, and more independent, when you can't, in fact, also... Mm. Uh, put the foot down again and accelerate further. That's certainly what, what, what happened to me. And I think you've got to understand that these days what you go into a career in your 20s, you're going to be working at least until you're 70. But that's a 50-year span. The, the, small, the, the couple of years, five, even five or 10 years, when maybe you're going through pregnancy and childbirth and young children, in the context of a, a career span that's lasting five times as much as that, uh, you know, you just have to have a sense of perspective. And one of the things I think we need to do, of course, is to enable women 
not just to drop out of the workforce, but also to return to the workforce when yeah. the time is right for them. Because it's not always right for everybody um, to want to um, work whilst they've got young children. Many people want to stay at, stay at home and they should have that choice and we should enable uh, uh, work to be a welcoming place for people who come back having taken a break from a, a career break because of their family commitments and recognize the value of the skills in running a family. You know, they are valuable skills. Absolutely. And I know that, that Helen Baker, who we interviewed last month on the podcast, said exactly that, actually. She said that, you know, when I went back to work after adoption leave, I'd learned how to negotiate a deal with difficult and demanding behaviour. I came back, she said, more tooled up than I ever had been. And I just thought... That's such a great attitude. Absolutely, and uh, I'm I'm sitting here now with uh, uh, we've just had a, a grandson, uh, so our second grandchild is only two weeks old, and I'm seeing my son, who's on his paternity leave and has to come back next week, uh, and his his wife, both of them are solicitors, you know, and just the sheer drudgery. I mean, it's it's, it's <laughs> yeah. a pleasure, but it's also a drudgery of the three hourly feeds. You know, it's 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 a tough. It's tough. It teaches you perseverance for sure <laughs> a recent ask the hive question on the podcast asked whether it was possible for a family with children to house two very successful careers careers that are growing uh, exponentially uh, or does one of the partners always have to take a back seat at any given time i mean when your husband's career was at its peak uh, and you were living your life under such high scrutiny is that what you had to do did did you have to sit down and negotiate well, I don't think we ever sat down and negotiated it in, in that sense. Um, I I think, though, it's true, having two careers takes a lot of give and take. But then any relationship, uh, particularly a relationship in, 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 in you know, a intimate relationship like a mm. marriage or a, a, you know, with your life partner, it's always about negotiation. Mm. Having said that, it's quite difficult, I think, to have two high-powered careers going on at the same time. I was quite lucky because Tony um, had obviously was a barrister for the first seven years, but then he became an MP and his income plummeted and I became the main breadwinner. So to some extent, when I was building my career while he was a backbench Labour MP, you know, I, he, he was able to assist and I was able to prioritise that because for us, Hmm. I was the person who had the ability to to earn some more money. His salary was fixed. Um, and I always remember him coming home one day and saying that in the late 1980s, saying that the Northern Whip had said to him, Tony, if you continue uh, to keep going home at seven o'clock to be with your children and uh, come back for the 10 o'clock vote, you know, instead of being in the bars with the lads, you'll never make it in politics. And I'm glad to say he was proved wrong. That's interesting to hear that men are under the exact same pressure, but perhaps perhaps they don't talk about it as openly as women do. Oh, I think it's true that men are often un under pressure. And I see it now with, as I mentioned, my son, I, I, in my own law firm, we have young men who have young children. And it's much harder for them to ask for flexible working sometimes. I think firms will uh, accept that, that, that uh, you know, we'll, we'll, a woman... Uh, may want flexible working, but they often look quite askance when a man asks for the same rights. Actually, so I'm very, I'm, 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 I'm delighted to say that the, the, that in my law firm, the first person who's taking advantage of flexible working is in fact a man. I think it's a, a great example to the female 
uh, lawyers that we have who I hope will go on and become pregnant themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Similarly, I think with uh, Tony becoming a prime minister, uh, which was a huge change, as you say, for, for my family. And But I was able to carry on my work uh, as as a lawyer. By that time, I was a QC and had a bit more flexibility. But part of the reason I was able to do that was also because I'm, as we've talked about before, I quite enjoy using IT. And the fact that I was able to use IT uh, and get access to the chamber's resources, the, the, the law reports, the, the, the law books that I needed, whilst working perhaps in Downing Street meant that I could be working on a, a legal case and preparing my brief and then break off for half an hour and go downstairs and entertain the, the wife of a visiting dignitary for tea <laughs> without really it making any difference. It would have been much more difficult for that had we not had the, 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 the technology there to make that happen. So I'm a great mm -hmm. believer in using technology to, to, to um, help make our lives easier. Often when we profile people like yourself, Cherie, who've been very successful in their careers, we tend to focus, don't we, on those great achievements and times that you've triumphed. Um, but often speaking to younger women at the start of their careers, they say, look, it's great to hear of the times when people have pushed through. But what about when things didn't go well, those mistakes and the failures? We want to hear about them because getting past those things, they're actually the tools that we really need around us. When you've been faced with professional failure, how have you dealt with it? I always remember when I was young, there was a, there was a popular song which uh, my grandma always used to refer me to, which was which says, you know, you've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again. And um, I've applied that to me. And actually, I've also applied it to Tony. There was a there was a time in our life when I found myself to be a Labour candidate. And he, Tony, was desperately wanting to be a Labour candidate and didn't have one and kept going for, for, for seats and being rejected. And I used to say to him, you've just got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over <laughs> yeah. again. And it worked because I was a Labour candidate in a hopeless seat. And of course, he ended up with a seat which was uh, one of the safest in the country. So He did all right in the end, didn't he, in his political career? He didn't do too badly <laughs> in his political career, it, it's for sure. I've got a final question for you. And that's that we all get to a stage in our careers when we really feel like we need to move on and we need to move up. But it can be frightening to stick your head above the parapet and, and push yourself onto the next stage a self-doubt and, and that feel of failure can creep in. What's your advice? Well, I think I always say who dares wins. And in, in my time, I I moved from at a time when it was very unusual to move from one barrister's chambers to another. But I realised if I wanted to go further and become a Queen's Counsel, I had to go to a better chambers. And I did. But it was a, it was a big thing to do. Um, or then when I came to apply to be, to be a QC, um, you know, there's always a feeling, oh, well, maybe I could do it next year. So I think hmm. sometimes you just have to believe in yourself and give it a go because in the act of actually giving it a go, it turns out to be a very positive one, I think. Especially if you're female, you're probably a lot better than you think you are. I always like the... Um, the research which shows that a woman applying for a job will look at the job specifications say, oh my goodness, I can only do nine out of ten of those, so I really shouldn't <laughs> apply because I won't get it. And a man looks and says, oh my goodness, I can do six out of the ten. I'm obviously well qualified for the job. We need to uh, believe in ourselves a bit more, I think.
Such a big thank you to Cherie Blair for her time and her candour. And if there's someone you would love to hear in the hot seat, do please get in touch. Just email us, podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. I can't believe we're heading towards the end of the episode already. But before we disappear off into another podcast sunset, it's time for Ask the Hive. This month, Sue wants a new job and also your advice on what she should do. decided I want a new job in 2018. It's not about taking a big step up, but more about change and trying something new. I've got a really good relationship with my employer, and with that in mind, should I let them know I'm looking to move in the next few months, or should I keep quiet until I get an offer? Well, if it's a change that you're after, perhaps you um, ought to talk to your employer about wanting to change as opposed to moving, because it could be that your employer has a different opportunity that they can offer you. So you might have a wider range of options if you talk about seeking a change as opposed to wanting to move. I think that the very last thing that I would do is tell my current employer. I think that would be ridiculous, to be honest. I think if you... um, If you have a good relationship with your employer, try and keep it that way. And if you want to look for something different, do it in your own time. As a boss, I don't know what your boss is like, but as a boss myself, if somebody came to me and talked to me about this, I'd listen to you and I'd appreciate your honesty. And also, think about it from your point of view, I might be able to help you. I might have some ideas or some contacts or be able to talk to you about the skills you've got that might be useful in a different business or a different industry to help you think about where you might go. If you have a good relationship with your employer, it's probably only fair to let them know. I'd probably wait until you had a few interviews lined up or you had actually found a role you were interested in and it it was there. Um, You could also let them know with the possibility of them offering you a change within the company you already work for or they could assist you in your transition if you have a good relationship. I think it is about the relationship you have with, the, with your employer and what sort of employer they are. So do they have good values? Do they have good terms and conditions? Is the integrity, the transparency there? Do you feel that you can be open and honest? And, and is that a two-way process? And if that relationship is there, then I would say on balance, and I think that's worth a discussion with your line manager, if you can trust that. If you have any doubt about that, then you're not obliged to uh, let your employer know Uh, and if there is any doubt then I would probably say we'll just keep it up to the notice period but if there is that good relationship I think it's good for succession planning uh, and it's good for the employer to be aware of of what may be happening in the future so in our organisation we have one-to-ones with um, our um, employees and we're starting to do that throughout the organisation and we want that we were asking for those honest conversations so that we can plan in the future who might be staying and who might want to go who might want to be promoted, who might want to look for a change of career. And we're asking people to be open with us. And, and, and likewise, I I and the team, so I meet with Jan, my chair, and, and we have that conversation about what my plans are, uh, and then the team do the same. And I just think if, you, if you've got that environment, and it's a safe environment to do that, then I think that's probably a good practice. But you do need to be to ensure that you know, if, if you are going to go, it can be trusted and you won't find yourself finished the week after on garden leave. So if I was looking to get another job, 
and I have a good relationship with my employer. Uh, depending on the job that I have and knowing that my employer knows me, I can't imagine that they would think that if I was working in a restaurant, for example, they want me to work, they know I want to work in a restaurant all my life, so they'd be more aware of that. It's more to do with a job that I have. So you might be more secretive if it was a job that you have uh, currently that you then wanting to step up for. Uh, you might want to keep that under wraps. Maybe worth exploring whether your organisation has unpaid sabbaticals so you can take some time out and explore what you might want to do. Okay, so I've actually been in that exact situation. So what I would suggest, if the relationship with the employer really is great, I think it's worth going to chat to them about what changes you can make in your existing job to see if that will like, satisfy you. But if you do just want to start fresh, I mean, I think any supportive employer understands that because, you know, I think a lot of us make decisions at 16 that are meant to dictate the rest of our lives and I don't know about you when you were 16 but I was not up to that level of decision making and sometimes when you're 28 things change and that's totally normal terrific insight as ever from the Northern Power Women Hive if you've got a question you would like to ask please do get in touch we would love to hear from you just email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com so it's time to listen up and see if you can help now because this month's question comes from Charlotte. Hi, my name's Charlotte Percy and I'm a family law solicitor at McAllister Family Law. I also lead an organisation which looks at addressing gender inequality in the legal industry. Um, I'm finding that a lot of women in the legal industry who are in the midst of climbing their career ladder are left wondering when is the best time to baby plan and how, you know, how to navigate this so that it doesn't impact career progression. There is a train of thought that I've come across recently um, endorsed by a Penelope Trunk, who's a career author and blogger, that states that women should get pregnant in their 20s if they want to achieve a high-powered career. Have myself and my contemporaries missed the boat to have it all? Another great subject. Have you got any advice, any insight, any experience? All thoughts really welcome, please. We'd love to hear from you. Just record a voice memo on your smartphone and you can email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or open up WhatsApp on your phone. Add the Northern Power Women podcast to your contacts on 07928 387 712. That's 07928 387 712 and you can send us your thoughts that way just hold the little microphone icon down in your message screen and answer away if you need those details again you can find them online at northernpowerwomen.com so there we go that's us wrapped up for another month please do subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends your colleagues heck even your enemies all about us please rate us and also leave a comment too wherever you get your podcast from really really appreciate your help the next episode arrives for you on march the 5th just before those glittering northern power women awards see you there until then this is the northern power women podcast i'm sam walker and this has been a what goes on media production for northern power women (laughs) 